Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 470. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 470 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated audio engineer and producer Jeannie Montalvo, who's worked with a number of people, including the Williamsburg Salsa Orchestra and Ruben Blades. We're going to have a great conversation all about her journey in the world of audio. Jeannie Montalvo, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about persistence. If you go back over many years worth of Working Class Audio podcast episodes, you will find a common denominator in a lot of my guests. And that common denominator is, of course, persistence. It's those who refuse to let opportunity pass them by. It's those who created opportunities for themselves by knocking on studio doors or sending in resume after resume after resume. It's those who persevered in spite of some of the harsher realities in front of them. So make no mistake, you will be disappointed. You will be let down by situations, by people, by yourself. And the one tool you have in your tool belt to get to the other side of it is persistence. And persistence is a tool best used by those who are willing to push forward. If you are easily discouraged and you give up easy, you're just not going to take advantage of that tool. Some of you are going to get pushback on work you do for people. They're going to say, no, this mix isn't good enough. This podcast isn't good enough. This whatever it is, is not good enough, or this sounds terrible. And you can either wither away and get out of the audio industry, or you can be persistent and keep moving forward. And own up to when somebody says, this isn't good enough, ask yourself, do you think it's good enough? And if the honest answer is no, it's not, then you need to improve. And you have to be willing to make those changes because persistence isn't just stubbornness or willingness to move forward. It comes with the responsibility of wanting to improve oneself so we can get better at what we do so we can prove to others that we are capable. To the newbies listening, I'll tell you right now, if you don't develop a thick skin, you can't see your way around making changes and continually blame everybody else and point the finger. I'm just gonna recommend you step down right now, unless you are persistent and willing to change and willing to improve. To those of you who have stuck it out, clearly, you carry with you and utilize the tool of persistence and you've changed and you've developed and you've gotten better. It's all within our own grasp. Nobody can say whether or not we will be persistent. It's up to us. And yeah, I get it. Yeah, you're a product of your upbringing, the people you hang around with, um, social norms, whatever that that is common in, in the world you come from. But I will tell you this, no matter where you come from, no matter your economic background, no matter 
who you are, if you are willing to persist and recognize, hey, I'm going to get better and therefore I'm not going to let these, you know, temporary setbacks I'm going to encounter let me down, I think you're going to be okay. I think if you just keep on going, it's all going to be good. And just a side tangent, you know, I mentioned those who you hang out with a bit. Determine your future by who it is you hang out with. Who you spend your time around is so important. You can choose to hang around people who spend all their time uh, trolling people on social media. You can spend all your time with people who tell you how hard things are and it'll never work and all that crap. Don't waste your time. Find friends who will support what it is you're doing and tell you the truth and help you get better at what it is you do. But that's a rant in itself, right? At the end of the day, persistence. Persistence, persistence, persistence. And some of the time, your persistence is gonna be directed at things you don't like. Do I like getting up at six in the morning? No, I don't, but I do because I have the responsibility of getting my kids ready in the morning and helping them have a successful day. Do I like doing mix revisions? No, but I have a focused interest in my client's success. Therefore, I will persist and follow through with them on mix revisions that we both agree will make better mixes. It could be a laundry list of shit like that. You get my point. So go out there, persist. As the classic term says, don't let the bastards get you down. Get out there, get to work, focus and persist and succeed. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says Coaching and Consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Jeannie Montalvo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you here. I always go down the same path to get our conversation rolling. So I'm going to ask you, where did you grow up? That is a loaded question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my parents are from the Dominican Republic. Okay. They moved here in 1980 and I was born a year later, which I guess I just gave away my age. Woo. Um, <laughs> We've always moved around a lot. They got a scholarship to learn English. My mom ended up doing a PhD at Oregon State University. So I was born in Oregon. I lived there for five years. And then we just kind of bounced around a lot. My parents got jobs in different places. Like we moved to Florida for a bit, but that didn't work out. And then my dad got a really good job opportunity in Alabama. And in those days, like, not everybody was sponsoring for a visa. So it was kind of like we went where the job was. So he got a job that was going to do all of that for him so that we could stay here. And we lived in Alabama for five years in a very small town, 5,000 people. And then uh, my dad got transferred to Georgia. And then that is where they stayed <laughs> for about 30 years. I lived in Atlanta probably like seven or eight years, I guess. I did middle and high school there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I just, I kept up the pattern of moving. <laughs> I went to school in Florida for my bachelor's. And then I did a, a like a study abroad, intensive studio recording thing in Spain. And then I did an internship and work study in Canada. And then I went to Massachusetts and then I landed in New York. So now actually, actually, if I was to redo this whole question, I would say I've been in New York for 15 years and that is home. So. <laughs> well, Sorry for the story of my life. <laughs> no, no, that's that's why we're here. Have you ever been back to the Dominican Republic with your parents? Oh, yeah, yeah. We went a lot because my mom's whole family's there. My dad's family moved after a while. You know, they bounced between New York and Miami. But we would always go back for Christmases, summers and things like that. And then as an adult, like I've felt a strong connection like with my roots so mm -hmm. we go a lot and I take the kids we've taken the kids there they've met their extended family and so it's it's nice did you grow up I would assume you grew up in a multilingual household yes yes I did I am fully bilingual in Spanish and English lucky you gosh I got a D in Spanish in junior high <laughs> and by saying junior high I'm dating myself <laughs> what about brothers and sisters I have a little brother. He is about seven years younger than me. He's an aerospace engineer. He was the smart one to oh. do a not creative job. <laughs> well, tell me about the role of music 
in the household? Did you play an instrument? Did your parents play music? How were you exposed to it? My earliest memories are of music in the house. I think my parents both loved music. My mom played piano. So then naturally I played piano. I grew up classically trained on the piano. And then once we hit whatever age in middle, whatever that you are allowed to join the band, Mm -hmm. I picked up the trumpet and I played trumpet from middle school all the way through. I did marching band, like I did all of that. And then, you know, I, I stopped after high school But I kind of picked it back up in college and like wind ensembles just to kind of just so I wouldn't lose that. Um, Mm. I also did a minor in music. So I do have a minor in piano performance. But I never was a... I know a lot of audio engineers who like got into audio engineering because they wanted to produce and create their own stuff. But I am not that person. Like I never wanted to be on a stage at that capacity. Like I never wanted to be a, a rock star. I loved music and I appreciated music and I liked to play, but I hate to say that I was like mediocre, but I was never destined for stardom as a musician. (laughs) So did you have like a conscious awareness of limitations as a musician or did you just not have the desire to play on stage in front of people? I mean, I think both. I would always get very nervous. Uh, I didn't have stage fright. I also danced. And being on a stage at that capacity was very easy. I did love to perform in that aspect, but when I played music in front of people, I would freeze up, especially like my recitals or my juries. And I would have to remember things very specifically. And I knew if I messed up that I had to keep going. And that was very hard for me. And when I got as a music minor, and especially piano, you're forced to do accompaniment. So like I had to accompany singers and violinists and all that stuff. And I would always get so nervous because I would I would learn the pieces. But I mean, as accompanist, you have to play perfectly because they have to sing over it. And I would always get nervous. And I think I would always just kind of get distracted by the musicality. I've never been able to do homework listening to music because I get distracted by the music. And so when I would start playing, I would get distracted by the musicality of the thing as opposed to just doing the thing. So no, I just never, I never saw myself in that art. So I guess it's a little bit of both. I didn't really have the desire to do it. And I also knew that I had those limitations. And I also like one semester had really bad tendonitis in my arm because Mm -hmm. like I also, despite having taken piano lessons, it wasn't at the level that I did in college. In college, you were practicing four hours a day. So my technique was very weak. And so I wasn't playing properly. I developed tendonitis. I had to withdraw a semester. So I just knew that like, (laughs) that I was not going to go that route. When did audio present itself as something you were interested in and as an option? So I didn't know audio existed. Back then it wasn't as prevalent everywhere that now you see people doing audio and you most people know what an audio engineer is. I didn't know that that job was a thing you could do. And despite having loved music, like people used to call me a human jukebox because I always knew the songs, I always knew tunes, I always knew obscure tunes, but I never thought about like how that music got created, that there was a person that hit a record button. So I think the technical side had always been with me because even as far back as elementary school, I would record the radio. You know, a friend of mine and I got into this thing where from cassette to cassette on the dual systems, we would make one song out of a bunch of oldies, but we would make the sentence exact, like edit exactly so that it would be one long sentence of a bunch of different songs. And that was from cassette to cassette. And they were like perfect, precise edits. And this was, and I was a kid. And then 
When I got into college, I started editing music for dance groups because a friend of mine was in radio and he's like, oh, I have this program called Cool Edit Pro. You could edit quickly. And I was like, cool. And then (laughs) the first time I did an edit, his mind was blown. He was like, this is really impressive that you could do this. And then from then on, I just was like, I like doing this. And when I graduated, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Maybe I'll do music business because music business was the only thing because I knew I wanted to work in music, but I didn't know in what capacity. And then I was sitting on the floor in my room in my parents' house and I found a brochure from the University of Miami and it had the music business program, which is, I had been keeping an eye on. But then I like flipped the page and on the other side was this thing called music engineering. And I was like, oh, what is this? And then I started to read and it was just like all of the light bulbs went off. I was like, oh gosh, this is me. This is me from like day one <laughs> in my room, like recording on cassettes. So as soon as I read that, I started looking into um, second bachelors, going back for that. I ended up doing a year at Georgia State because there was a program there. And obviously in-state, because my parents still lived there, was a, a lot cheaper to do all of that. Mm-hmm. And then that was kind of it. That was the spark. Just so I understand the timeline right. So when you were in your parents' house and you, and you find the brochure, had you already been to college or were you about to go into college? No, I I had graduated. I graduated a semester early Uh and my major was foreign language combination because I liked languages. So I did French and Spanish and I did a minor in mass communications and a minor in piano performance. So the irony is, is that my life now consists of my two minors as opposed to anything I did with my major. But I also spent more time on my minors in the last semester when I was like, you know, I really should be doing radio television as a major. This is more me. And I always was helping my friend. My roommate was a radio television major. and But at that point, it was just too late to switch majors because I had gone to school in Florida. It wasn't in state. And I had gotten like a small scholarship from the University of Central Florida to be able to stay there. But, you know, it was largely all we were funding. So it was like, we're not switching and you add on a couple more years. Like, this is it. And so I graduated. And that's when I was trying to figure out what was next. And so that's the timeline. I had, I had finished, but I was 21, 22. I was very young. Interesting just to be sitting around contemplating like the rest of your life. It's a profound moment. It's an important moment. So you graduated, you see the brochure, and where did you go from there? The first step in my mind was because I'd found the brochure. I was like, okay, I have a University of Miami. So I started rehearsing for the auditions to the University of Miami. But I didn't have a real piano at home. We always had an electric keyboard. Mm -hmm. And then part of the reason that my technique was so weak was because I didn't have, I mean, it had weighted keys, but it's, it's not the same, right? So I called Georgia State and I was like, hey, can I, you know, I have to do auditions for this program and uh, can I use your practice rooms? They said, sure, why not? You're not a student here, but why, by all means, come use the practice rooms. So I went and I was practicing. And it was the same thing as like serendipitous. I was walking down the hallway and I saw one of their cork boards and it said music recording degree, Georgia State. And I was like, oh gosh, I didn't even know this was here. And so I I actually looked up the professor and I met with him. He was like, are you going to be ready for the auditions? And I was like, yeah, I've literally been using your practice rooms to prep for an audition at UM. So yes, yes, I'll be ready. And the thing with Miami, I mean, aside from it being ridiculously expensive and not really an option anymore, they didn't allow a second bachelor's. So I would have had to do everything all over again because they forced you to do an electrical engineering minor, which is super smart. If I had to do it all over again, like awesome. 
But I mean, at that point, I already had a bachelor's, so I wasn't looking to do all of it again. I just wanted a second bachelor's or just a degree in recording or just to learn about it, really. Full sale was was something I looked into also, but it was 40 grand for a year and no guarantees Mm. of work. And I mean, I couldn't justify that. So in-state tuition was very, very cheap. So I took out some student loans and I signed up. I got in and I did a year and they accepted your bachelor's credits. So I started as a junior straight into the recording program. I did a year there. I didn't end up finishing. I was looking for more and the program itself wasn't as robust. It's changed a lot now. Now it's it's very different. I'm still in touch with a teacher, but again, I already had a bachelor's, so I learned as much as I could, and then I end up transferring to um, a technical school in Barcelona just because it was on my bucket list to do a study abroad. And that was just a six-month intensive. I went, I did the program, and then again, was like, where do I go from here? So, <laughs> What did you take away from those programs? Did you feel like you got a good grip on what you needed to get knowledgeable in? Yeah. Georgia State, I fully appreciate that. I mean, the first semester, they didn't allow you to use digital. I mean, digital, I say it in quotes. We were recording to high eight tapes. So, you know, we were on using boards, Mackies, Mm. and just using those kind of multi-tracks on a, a digital cassette tape as opposed to like being in a DAW that you could easily manipulate stuff. So I feel like we got a really good handle on understanding previous technologies and being able to adapt some of that into like newer technologies. And, you know, then after that next semester, then we were allowed to use Pro Tools and then we were able to play around more there. I learned a lot from the people actually who were in the program. We all really banded together and I didn't know anything. I <laughs> I really, really had zero idea of anything coming in. Mm. And so I really, really, really learned a lot from the people in my program. They all seemed to know so much more than me because I guess they'd been doing it and they'd been in it. And so I would just, you know, I asked them lots of questions and I used to call it my audio for dummies. I'd be like, hey, can you (laughs) do my audio for dummies real quick? And then I would just ask a bunch of questions. I remember falling asleep on Mackie manuals, like (laughs) trying to figure things out. I remember the first time I opened one, I was like, what is a bus (laughs) and what does it do? I don't understand. Right. But all of that, I felt, was such a great foundation because, you know, like now troubleshooting is fairly easy. While all machines and boards and things are different, the main concepts of signal flow is all the same. So, yeah. It's easier to troubleshoot just having that that foundation and, and understanding how sound works and the physics of it and, and all that stuff. So your time in the in these programs, did you feel like it was amplifying your interest as you were in it? Was it encouraging you to want to go out in the world and do it? Oh yeah. I still remember the first day that I walked into the first recording class and I sat down and there were these beautiful tannoy speakers and he put a Beatles track on. He's like, okay, we're going to listen to this and we're going to analyze it. He was also a a big Genesis head. So like, it was like a lot of Phil Collins and a lot of Beatles. And I remember sitting there and being like, this is where I'm supposed to be my whole life. And I can't believe it took me this long to figure it out. Because I was like, where where else was I going to sit and analyze music for what it sounded like and how it was created? What a great (laughs) place to be. 
I don't regret having taken so long to figure it out. And it wasn't that long. I mean, I was still in my early 20s, but comparatively to people who are like, who know right out of high school. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't start in audio until I think I was 23 or 24. And all that time leading up to that, I was like, I'm going to be a drummer in a band and be a rock star. That clearly didn't work out. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so, I mean, you figure it out when you figure it out. And for the audience, just kind of as on this topic, I'll put a link in the show notes to Sarah Carter in the UK. Sarah started way late and ended up at the BBC. Her story is a fascinating story, so I'll, I'll include a link to that. So where do you go from here? Where do you venture to next? When I finished the diploma, I really wanted to live somewhere where there weren't cars. Like, I didn't want to drive. Uh, that was my allure to Europe. <laughs> I also just really love history. So, like, living in a place that had all this really beautiful architecture just was inspiring to me. But I'm not a European citizen, so I, there was no way to stay. And there's always that, like, okay, I could stay here and teach English somewhat not legally. Or I could go do audio in the States, which is the smarter move. So I went to my first AES conference that year because there was the European Convention in Paris, which sounds fancy, but I had a friend who lived there and you can go from Barcelona to Paris for like 30 bucks. <laughs> and I stayed with her and I went to this convention and I met Jim Anderson, who is a huge engineer and works at NYU. He did a student mentoring panel and they were like speed dating. It was like speed mentoring. <laughs> you would get 15 minutes with different engineers. And I hope they, I was like, I think I want to go to New York. And in my head, my New York was solely because there were trains and I could walk and I didn't have to drive anymore. And he was like, no, you, you need to go somewhere where you can make all your mistakes. And then you go to New York where you can play with all the big engineers. And he's like, have you heard of the BAMP Center? Mm. I would look it up. They have a work study. It's a great place to go. And I was like, all right, cool. So I looked it up. I applied. I got rejected. And so I was bummed. The rejection came in like June. And then in end of August, I am packing my bags to head back to Atlanta to once again sit on my my bedroom floor <laughs> and figure out what was next. And my mom calls me and she's like, hey, the BAMP Center called here looking for you. So I connected with them and they wrote me and they had somebody drop out and they were wondering if I was still interested in a spot. And I was like, yes. But the timing was like, it started two weeks from that call. So like I was going home in a week to Atlanta and then I unloaded everything. I repacked for freezing cold weather and got my visa to go to Canada. And then I was on a plane to Canada on like the first week of September. And so, <laughs> I don't know, things like that have a tendency to just happen to me again. Another serendipitous thought I wasn't going to go here. What am I going to do? And then that just, they came together. And I was really grateful for that. Someone else's loss was my gain in that situation. Yeah. I ended up staying in Banff for six months. And in Banff, I met somebody who was had already been accepted to the Tanglewood Music Festival in Boston. He's like, why don't you apply? And again, I was late to apply for that. But for whatever reason, they accepted me and I, I got the audio fellow position. So it wasn't like the full-blown engineer, but I was the fellow. But, you know, I got to learn from really great people. And, you know, I never really set out on day one to work in classical or jazz. But, you know, Banff Center for the Arts and Tanglewood are, are both heavily classical 
fed programs. And the people who go there are usually from McGill University. But I learned so much from them. And then the Tanglewood, same thing. Someone at the Tanglewood program that year worked for the Metropolitan Opera Restoration Project that used to be with Sony Music, so Sony Classical, and then Mm -hmm. Sony Classical shut down. And he was like, hey, we're looking for someone. Do you want to apply? And I hated opera at the time, so I was like, no. No, thank you. No, thanks. But, you know, I spent that whole summer writing to studios in New York, like all summer, and all of them were like unpaid, unpaid, and I can't live in New York unpaid. That's impossible. So... By the end of the summer of all of the like, no, we don't really have any positions. I went back to my friend and I was like, hey, so about this opera thing. And then I got, that was my first job in New York. And I do like opera now, so. (laughs) For the audience, can you talk a little bit about what's involved with the BAMP Center? First of all, it's kind of categorized as a a work-study thing. Do you pay for it? Are you paid? Like, I don't even know how it works. Yeah, it's a work and a study, work study. So you receive a stipend. They give you X amount for the time you're there. It's usually three months and then they can renew you for another three months if you want. Basically, like I I have to look back because I'm actually not sure. I think they covered our living expenses, but we didn't pay anything to be there. We received money because basically what you do is you you're allowed to work on your own projects, but your purpose there is to record the recitals. The Banff Center has a huge arts program. So like people come in and they do residencies there and they give performances and you are there to record the performances. It's great because you also interact with a lot of musicians. So sometimes you could liaise with the musicians and then you could say, hey, do you have anything to record? Let's set something up and you could do recordings there. They would bring in master classes. I know we had Alex Case and I feel like we might have had Leslie Ann Jones unless I am conflating the two, but mm-hmm. Alex Case came out once and gave a really great master class. That's the main one I can remember. It was really great. It was a great environment because it was the same. You know, you're with a bunch of other engineers who are kind of at the same level as you and or above you and everybody's learning and they're very supportive of your projects. So some people would have, sometimes outside clients would come and book things and then you would get booked on that. Like I remember I did a, a dubbing thing I don't remember what it was. I think it was a film and they were dubbing it into French and we had to record the VO and like I got assigned to that recording. So I was doing that. So it's a very cool environment. I don't know how much it's changed since then, but it's a great environment. You're not in school anymore. So it's like you are working, you are being assigned to gigs, like you are doing that stuff. But you can also, on your free time, you have access to all these studios and, and you are encouraged to use the studios for things. So, like I brought up um, a samba group from Calgary because I wanted to record batucada. I wanted lots of percussion and they were cool with that. Is it typically people on the younger side or are there older people there or from the engineer side, those who are, who are accepted to the program? I feel like all of us were all pretty much around the same age. I mean, I at that point, would have been late 20s. Most people were post-grad or had just recently graduated or were doing master's. There was a gentleman who was a little bit older than us, but he was there doing a doctoral fellowship. Hmm. That's a good question. Might be an option for some of my listeners who are on the younger side who are interested in that. I'll put a link in the show notes to that in case anybody's interested. So you did the BAMP thing. Tanglewood, Mike Sr., who's been on the show, 
was at Tanglewood as a player, I believe. Mm. Um, so you did that, and then eventually you wound up taking the opera gig. Yes. And you moved to New York? I moved to New York. And how did that opera gig pay? Like, did you feel comfortable? in New York uh, <laughs> audio-wise is like great, great pay. I don't know any New Yorker that only has one job, honestly. No. I mean, it paid decent for this was 2007. So I was making $15 an hour in 2007, mm. which is at least getting paid and is not $0 an hour. I also lived in Queens. I never lived in the city and I had roommates. So like my Rent was not too horribly expensive, but I also supplemented. I did work that job 40 hours a week. So like I wasn't making a living at that time. I also worked part-time at the Manhattan School of Music. One of the guys at the BAMP Center was the engineer there. So I guess actually age-wise, now that I think of it, I forgot Rich Kim was the main engineer at Manhattan School of Music and he had gone to the BAMP Center. So I got into Manhattan School of Music as a part-time engineer. And it was easy because the the opera, I was archiving. We were archiving and digitizing, remastering all these performances. But that was a day job. So our hours were 10 to 6. And then the recital recordings would happen nights and weekends. Then I'd occasionally get called for a gig with whoever. And that's kind of how I made ends meet the first couple of years was just working all the time. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So to kind of sum up your experience in New York, it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's comprised of a lot of different things, a lot of different tasks. You're diversifying. You're not just doing one gig. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So currently, what what are the gigs that you do? Where do you focus your, your attention for audio, for money, for making a living? Well, my day job that pays the bills is a company that does podcasts. 
I used to be their engineer. I am now solely a producer who sound designs really well. I have always had a kind of creative knack. And so at this point, I guess I'm kind of sort of a reporter journalist because I like to tell stories. So most of the stuff that I do with them is is more on the producing end. And that pays my bills. That being said, I always try to infiltrate music whenever I can. A lot of the stories that I do are usually music-based, interviews with musicians. Before the pandemic, I tried to do what we called Live from Latino USA, which was we had musicians come and play acoustic in the office. It's sort of like a tiny desk, our own version of it. Mm -hmm. And the very last one we did before the pandemic was Jose Feliciano, which was like, we're getting big now. We're going to make this happen. And then the pandemic happened and then we have not been revived it since. Mm. Um, But on the side, I still continue to record music whenever I can. I've moved out of classical and jazz. What I wanted to do when I started always was Latin music. And, you know, I was never frustrated. I, I mean, I grew up playing classical piano and I loved scoring and movies and classical orchestra. I loved all of that. But I never sat down and said, I want to record and work in that environment. But that's where I ended up. And I really enjoyed and loved the time that I spent there. But when I finally, you know, came into Latin music, I was thrilled. And also, you don't realize how much you learn doing certain things. So like so much stuff that I'd learned from classical recording techniques, I was able to apply into doing Latin music. And so Mm. that's kind of what I do on the side. I work with a lot of Latin indie artists in the city. My husband's also a singer-songwriter. So like I'm his own personal Susan Rogers. I'm his 24-hour engineer. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I'm fortunate in that sense that I have an endless dream of being able to record there. And so that's kind of my day in, day out. And I get called for random gigs here and there. And Not to go down a technical rabbit hole, but I'm just curious, like, what are some of the techniques that you have brought easily from the classical world into the Latin music world? Well, I got to record Florito Loache, which is an all-female mariachi group here in New York. And there's so many violins and there's so many different stringed instruments Mm. in mariachi that you don't really think about. And to record a violin, it's like all you do in classical, like (laughs) in chamber orchestras and in all different kinds of settings. And so like, I didn't have to look up how to record a violin. Like I just put the mic where I would put it if I was recording a violin for a chamber orchestra. Tons of horns, tons of all of that stuff. It's just easily translated um, Mm. into like where the mic placement was, how those instruments sound. And um, one of the compliments that I got on the mix from there producer engineer at the time was like how airy and nice it sounded like a a positive airy not a bad airy but sense of space yeah yeah and a lot of that is all from learning how to record classical music so i don't have a lot of experience recording classical music excuse my ignorance about it but are we talking about bringing decatry setups into that recording environment or is it just individual mic placement on instruments that we're talking about yeah, no individual mic placements. Okay. So like in in classical, I would bring the mic above the violin as opposed to like trying to really close mic it or anything like that. Right. Um, it's not like you're making a Beatles record. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what have been the challenges for you as an audio professional in general, would you say? I mean, aside from COVID, but just day-to-day challenges in the last 10 years, we'll say. 
I mean, I think it's the the challenge, the same challenge as everybody. It's just getting work. Yeah. <laughs> getting paid. Like the reason that podcasting is my day job. <laughs> I always make the joke that podcasting pays for my music habit. There's a reason for that because like it's hard to make money in music. And so people when they once they get an engineer they like, they usually like to stick to that. And I understand that because music is your baby and it's your art. So once you find somebody that does your art nicely, it's not like you're you're not going to engineer hop. So it's hard to convince somebody who already has a person maybe to come and record with you. So that has been a challenge. Being a woman has its own challenges, trying to just be heard in the space and, and get the gigs in general. But I feel better about that. I feel that, you know, like I've done enough time, <laughs> which sounds like I've been in jail, but like I've done enough time in the industry to and have a proven track record of work to say like, okay, I, I do know what I'm doing. I, I can record your art. And so that feels less of a challenge uh, these days, but it's hard to get work. And it's hard to convince yourself to keep going when it's hard to get work. You know, I talked to uh, Leslie Gastonberg a little bit about this. Just to be clear, I was in a group of people. We were having this discussion and Leslie was leading the discussion. We were talking about women in audio and how many of them are very, very educated. And one of the reasons is, is that that education helps bring uh, credibility and validates them to others. Is Would you agree with that? I agree in the sense that you have to know twice as much as the person next to you. Otherwise, you don't get the gig. Because if you make a mistake, then it's because you're a girl. Mm. So you just have to, you have to know twice as much as the person next to you. You can't make mistakes. There's no room for mistakes. So you have to be more educated. You have to be more on top of your game. And it can be exhausting, but it is what it is. It's part of the game, I guess. Do you feel that there are more women in audio now than there were 10 or 15 years ago based on your travels? I do. I do see a lot more women. I loved seeing there was a lot of women at the Audio Engineering Society convention this year. So I, I was excited to see that. I still think we have a lot of room to improve. The numbers still aren't great. It's interesting because you go to these places and you go to these sites and you see, you definitely see more women. But when they put out these reports about like who is participating and, you know, the top 100 charts, the numbers are, are still very dismal. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I will say it is a challenge for me to find audio professionals who are women to have on the show. It's a constant search, like always trying to find women and, and going to the usual suspects. I really lean on sound girls quite a bit. Carrie's been really, really helpful in that. She's great. Yeah. In, in that world as a representative, like if, if I find somebody, I'm like, Hey, Carrie, can you make an introduction? <laughs> and she's, she's very patient with me in that regard. Well, and it's, it's good though. I mean, you know, between Carrie and sound girls and, and Terry over at women's audio mission, still, the numbers are still low, not as low as they used to be. I see it mm -hmm. growing and you could see it sometimes in 
demographic breakdowns that you get, data you get from, you know, who's listening, who's looking at the posts, you know, for, right. for the show. And I'm like, oh, the number of women are increasing. But I also think that's proportional to the amount of guests I have that are women too. So Right, right. As far as a philosophy on, and I, I ask everybody this, as, as an audio professional, we typically are very enchanted by gear. It's a temptation. It's a distraction in many <laughs> cases. How are you with balancing your desire to acquire gear? And would you call yourself a saver or a spender? Like, What's your approach to money and your approach to gear? I hate spending money. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I have always had to work so hard for it and never have enough of it <laughs> that it usually comes down to what do I need. So in the very, very beginning, I made had an, an, an investment in my speakers, in my A to D converter and my computer. And I survived. And slowly, every time something pops around, like if I need a mic, I get a mic. I don't have an extensive mic collection. I have one very good mic. I have a couple of shotgun mics because, and I say a couple, I have two shotgun mics <laughs> because I'd, I've worked in podcasting. And But I pay attention when there's sales. So Dream Hire here in New York was a place that was a big rental spot that everybody used to rent mics from for any sort of gigs. And they went under a few years ago. And so at that time, I acquired a Audio-Technica 4050. And I got it cheap because they were closing down. It is very hard for me to justify purchases of three or $4,000 mics. There's so many other things that I could use that money for that I, I am hesitant to buy that kind of stuff. If I need to use those kind of mics, I will go to a studio. If I was doing more regular, regular gigs where I would need those kind of mics on a daily basis, then maybe I would reconsider that. But it, it's very much for me, but like, what do I need? And how do I justify that purchase for what I'm doing on a daily basis? And so part of the thing that I learned with the classical stuff too is a lot of remote recording. We used to, we led to tons of remote recording and, and recording orchestras and setups and setting up tons of remotes. So I have some remote gear. I have a, a Motu a 896 hybrid that I've had for many, many years and it still works and it sounds great. And so I can make that work. I used that for live from Latino USA. I brought it in. I brought in my mics. I set up my mics and we were good to go. I have to need it on a daily basis. I can't acquire for it to sit on a shelf and collect dust. Otherwise, it just seems like expenses to me that don't. It is often hard to turn away from the like, especially now that like all the Cyber Monday deals have come up, like, oh, look at this plugin for <laughs> XYZ. <laughs> so I have, I got waves. I think I have the Horizon bundle and I got it for like dirt cheap for this time of year deals. Yeah. So I don't know. It, I, if you pay attention, you can find the sales. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like identifying before the sales happen, what it is you're looking for and mm -hmm. keeping a close watch on that. I managed to get through Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday without buying anything. I can't oh, believe good. it. I'm shocked at myself. Usually I'm like, oh my gosh, got to get that. Yeah. But I haven't yeah. bought anything. Yeah. Fortunately, I also didn't buy anything, but because I bought things in the past, all of my renewals have just been charging. Uh, yeah. like, oh. So yeah. here we are. 
I like what you're saying there. Just the subtext of it, just like buy what you really need, what you're using, what's important. And in this day and age, a computer is critical uh, to what all of us are doing at this point. I do these rants on the show at the beginning of the show. And in one of the rants I talk about how important it is just to have a very simple rig for editing. You know, it doesn't have to be crazy elaborate, crazy expensive, but something that can support a DAW and a pair, a good pair of headphones and you're off to the races. So I love hearing that because I think, and I'm guilty of this, like the Sweetwater catalog will show up and I, there I am like looking at, ooh. you know, ooh, <laughs> oh, that looks nice. Ooh, maybe I mm-hmm. should get one of those. Stuff that I don't even use every day. Right. And being now, I'm at the point in my life where I'm mostly mixing. I feel guilty when I'm looking at two things. Drum sets, because I don't play drums really anymore. I shouldn't be looking at drum sets. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't be looking at microphones because I kind of have a lot of microphones already. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about podcasting. It's sure. it's definitely something that's grown tremendously over the years, next year in 2024, depending on when you're listening to this audience, I will hit the 10-year mark with this show. And in that time period, I've seen a lot of podcasts come and go, but it's a cool thing to do from an audio professional perspective. Jeannie, I'm wondering if you could shed some light on how you got the gig you have and if people are interested in pursuing the podcast route. I mean, short of starting your own show like I've done and, and kind of going that path. If they want to go work for an agency or something like what, what do you do? How how does that even work? That is an excellent question. At one point in my trajectory where I was like, I'm really tired of working this amount of gigs. I decided to go back for a master's, which you don't really need as an audio engineer, but I like school and I'm a nerd. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, and I'm going to try to find something in a different direction because I want to get like a stable job and make stable money and not work every day of my life. The irony is that I ended up in the studio anyways, and my thesis was also on studio recording stuff. But what happened is that I made connections in the master's program and a friend of mine got an internship at NPR one summer. And she was like, hey, they're looking for more freelancers in New York. Do you want to do it? Do you want to apply? And I didn't really know much. I mean, the thing about the radio space is that if you know the techniques to record, you know how to record radio. The differences in broadcast and radio is obviously like being able to react on a live show, learning the board, the heavy routing, the different mixes that you need to do for people to route different calls and things like that. That's the more complicated part. But in terms of like recording and a signal and now podcasting, you already know how to do that. But I ended up getting the gig at NPR. I don't actually know how, because I remember I left, they they made you take a test. And I remember leaving the test and I was like, wow, I did horribly on that test. But I got it. And that was my foot in the door. Because from there I got same friend was also freelancing at Bloomberg Radio and she was like, hey, we need another tech. And I was like, cool. So then from there I got the gig at Bloomberg Radio. So now I was freelancing at NPR and Bloomberg. And then from there I moved into podcasting 
And I got the gig as the engineer at Latino USA, which was on NPR at the time, which is the company that I still work for now. I don't actually have a good answer to how to get in because I remember sending countless emails and feeling really dejected about like, I'm never going to find a job in this space. But eventually I got one. So it's kind of like just keeping at it. You do need to have some kind of portfolio. So if recording your friend's podcast in their garage is the way to go, like for you to get that portfolio, like you should do it. You should read up as much as you can on podcasting and the art of podcasting and just kind of move into that space. I feel like if you're in school, there's there's always a class here and there. There is a difference between, obviously, the the broadcasting and being a board tech, a board op, as opposed to just podcasting, because that's a little more involved. But I think, again, if you understand signal and audio, like, you can adapt it. And I had worked in live sound a lot, so, like, adapting my live sound skill set was what made me be able to be a board op for a live show and that kind of stuff. So you just need one person to give you a chance. So... If you, if you work on your portfolio and you work on your game and you have like XYZ, make fake podcasts. Just record some audio and put some music underneath it and play with how the music interacts with the voice and play with sound design. Podcasts have so much sound design. It's not just film now. So like play around with all that, have your portfolio and just keep applying because it only takes one person to give you a chance. And as soon as you have that one person on your resume, then it's very easy to then move into the next one. It's not to say that you're going to immediately get a job because like I said, like I had been working at Bloomberg for a year and a half and I think I probably started applying eight months in to try to look for another job. And it took me another year and some change to find another job. And I was applying a lot, but you just need the one person so that you can put that on your resume and then you're solid. I think it's for some, there's a little bit of soul searching that has to take place because I think some people really, or many people get into the world of audio. They kind of want to be a rock star engineer in their own way, right? Yeah. I f- yeah. At least I feel that way. I feel like a lot of people are like, well, I can't do that because that's not yes. this and that's not cool. But really at the end of the day, I mean, if we just take the term working class audio, I mean, podcast. A job is a job. Yeah, job is a job, whether it's in live sound, whether it's a podcast studio. Yeah, it's nothing to be ashamed about at all. I wouldn't know why people would be. Maybe it's because of ego. I don't know. I think there's some of that involved, yeah. I think for some people, they feel it's a step down or a disappointment. It's like, oh, well, I'm not Bob Claremont or Chris Lord Algie or Andrew Sheps. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important Back to my, you know, and, and this is something you'll hear me talk about diversification. And I just strongly feel like the podcast world is such chock full of opportunity. Yeah. No. And I think to your point, two years into my gig, I got the EQL residency, the Spotify electric lady residency for a woman in New York engineer because I missed music. I wanted to go back to music. And that was the link to get me back and start doing all this indie Latin, right? What I realized when I started doing that was how much narrative audio and podcasting had informed now my music decisions and the decisions that I made going into creating a story 
with music. With my husband's music, I, we work together to produce unless we have an external producer. But narrative podcasting made me understand that everything needs a window. Everything needs a moment. Everything has a purpose. If you're going to have this music swell happen somewhere, it is for a reason. Like if you have sound design, you're not going to have stuff happening under someone's narration because you can't hear it. Like you need to create windows for that. And I started to see music that way. And so like when we would do things, we would we would create windows. The music needs to tell a story too. Like it's all a narrative, right? And so when I started to see music that way, I feel like it really changed how we worked. It's not just about throwing a bunch of instruments and things in places. They have to have a purpose. They have to have a story. They have to help tell the narrative of the story that you're trying to tell, whether that's music or podcasting. So I kind of have always been very appreciative of the podcast space for having kind of taught me that. You know, I feel like they go along. And what you were saying about ego, like I've seen so many people who go in and out and who it seems that they think that they are above certain jobs. And I just, you're always going to learn something at a job. If I had turned down any of the jobs that I have done, I wouldn't have learned all of these different things. Like I knew how to use Isotope before Isotope was cool because all I did for years was clean up opera and clean up ticks and find dropouts. And I had to do critical listening I knew how to do that. And so like that was an easy stepping stone into podcasting because I knew how to use the tools because I'd been using it in music for so long. No job is not the job. The job is the one who is going to help you eat and pay your rent. Thinking of your career in a more broad perspective, I think when we do these other gigs, live sound, podcasts, making records, sound design, whatever it is you're doing, you're broadening your horizons and your experience. And as you say, one informs the other. Podcasting can inform your music production skills, just as, you know, working at Banff in classical, bringing that over, those techniques over to recording of Latin music. I think it just makes for a much more well-rounded person and a much more interesting story for other people. It's like, wow, you've done this, you've done that, you've done, wow. You have a lot of experience in these other areas. Plus, you never know where you're going to go in the future. You might Your interests may change and shift on a dime. And if the experiences you've gained along the way help you get to the next stop in your journey, great. Exactly. Yeah, Steve Jobs has that quote that he did in some commencement speech about connecting the dots, about how like when you look back in your life, it's kind of all about the dots connecting, but you have to trust the process because you don't see the dots connecting as you go forward. You see them as you look back and you have to trust that eventually the dots will connect. And I kind of feel like the past couple of years have I've seen how all of my dots have connected. And I'm glad, like there used to be that whole thing about jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. But I kind of think that that's an unhelpful thought. I kind of feel like... If you know how to do a lot of different things, then you can be called to do a lot of different things. It doesn't mean you're going to be mediocre at everything, but it means that you are diverse. It means that, yeah, you want me to mix that podcast? Yes, I can mix that podcast. You want me to sound design that podcast? Great. You need me to record this music over here? Great. You want me to come do your remote recording of your group playing a concert? La, la, la. Yeah, great. I can do that too. It's about being able to say yes to the gigs because you know how to, you have done so many different things that they come together really nicely in the end, so. 
And just kind of on that Steve Jobs note, there's a quote that has always resonated with me where he talks about this world we live in has a bunch of rules and walls and barriers, and it's all made up by people not any smarter than you are, not you in particular, Jeannie, but us generally. And once you realize that you can move or change the rules or change where the walls are, you can make up the world that works for you. I'm paraphrasing. I'll put a link in the show notes to, <laughs> to both the the connecting the dots speech and this movement of walls speech. Because I think they're really interesting in, as audio professionals who are trying to, you know, what am I going to do with my life? As you've asked yourself many times, I think that knowing that you can shift and move things around to your your way of, of doing things, you just can't be afraid to go that route. Obviously, if you've got responsibilities, like we both have kids, so, you know, yeah. some of our decision-making is a little more conservative, financially speaking, because we have kids. But if you don't, and you can try some experiments early on with your audio career, by all means. I think I'm rambling, but I, I hope the message gets across. I fully agree. <laughs> I mean, that's the reason why I have a full-time job and I do my music stuff on the side. I have two kids. I can't, you know. I do feel fortunate that I did all of the things that I did when I did them. I mean, even the EQL residency, like, you could look at it as, like, maybe I should, was a little too old for that. Like, I, my, my son was one <laughs> when I did that. I was 10 years older than the assistant engineer. But, you know, it was a residency. It wasn't an internship. And it was fully paid. So it was, like, it was finally my opportunity to work in a commercial studio. And so, you know, on some level I was like, I'm too old for this. But the other level I was like, well, there's no too late. But like, I'm glad that I did the things at the time that I did them because now that I have more responsibility and that my decisions are like, need to be a little bit more calculated. I'm glad that, like I said, I moved around a lot and it was okay to do that at the time because I didn't have any responsibilities in that sense. I could go from Barcelona. Sure, I'll move to Canada in a week and, you know, I I could go do that. I think it's important to, like, also be open to do whatever. Sure, you want me to go here? I'll go there. Why not? Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for making time for me. And uh, I will include a link in the show notes to your website and any other links, Instagram and such, that you want me to put in there. And at some point, we'll meet in person, I'm sure. Maybe at a conference. But uh, really great to meet you and great to chat with you. So thank you so much for uh, being here on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Will you take care? Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Jeannie Montalvo here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Want to remind you to head on over to your podcast aggregator. Leave us a five-star review. Let everybody know that you like the show. 
But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plowen, the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and that magical voice at the top of the show is none other than Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, not at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>